Now, obviously, uh, I don't have an Edinburgh accent. Uh, as was said, I am from the United States. My family moved to Edinburgh three years ago from South Carolina. And one of the things you have to do as you adjust to life in the UK is you have to transfer that driver's license. Though I've been driving since I was 15 in the States, that use license only lasts for a year in the UK. And so this was in the middle of COVID. It was very difficult to even get an appointment to get my uh, drive test, but I, I finally got that appointment. And everyone's saying, you really should probably take some driving lessons before you do this this test. And, you know, I've been driving for 20 years. That's not necessary. I've heard that, that these tests can be difficult, but in my own pride and confidence went uh, to take this exam outside of Edinburgh. And as I was about 30 minutes in the car with this instructor, I thought this is this is pretty easy. This I don't know what people are, are complaining about. And, and we get back to the car park of of where we started. And we're wearing face masks at the time because it's still COVID. So I couldn't really read the expression of my instructor's face. And he turned to me and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but you failed. And I really thought he was joking because, again, I couldn't see the expression on his face. I was waiting for the punchline, uh, the DVLA, DLVA. They, they're not known for their humor, I suppose. Um, and it was no joke. And he told me there was a, a little country road we went down that was the national speed limit, and you were going at 30 miles an hour. And I went back up to the fact I knew the road he was talking about. I knew it exactly. I remember where it changed from 20 to 30, but I don't remember this national speed limit sign. I went back on Google Maps Street View, and it's like, yep, there, there it is. And it was frustrating because I knew what that sign meant. But as an American... I believe that if you want to put a speed limit on a road, just put the numbers on the sign rather than some silly certain line through it. And because it didn't numbers, I completely ignored it. And as a result, failed my driving test for driving too slowly, which is ironic because I've never been accused of driving too slowly before in my life. But of course, I had to take that test again. And, and what, how that relates to our passage today is, is this idea of a sign. John talks about this. He ends in verse 11 saying that this is the first of Jesus' signs. So the sign that we're going to see in our passage today, I don't want it to be overlooked. I don't want it to be ignored. I want it to be understood so we see how it can apply to our lives. John actually is, when you think of the gospel, it, it can be divided into two sections. You have chapters 1 through 12 and chapters 13 through 21. Well, that first section of the gospel of John is known as the book of signs. Because in those 12 chapters, it contains seven miracles, which John, the author, calls signs. So it's a little bit different from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These Gospels record many more of Jesus' miracles. And he called them something different, different too. In the Greek, it would be translated as something as acts of power or mighty works. Most of them point forward to helping us to understand the kingdom of God. But what John is doing here is something different. He says these miracles, calls them signs so that they reveal to us something about Jesus himself. And so while this, this passage, we recognize the actual physical transformation that occurs, that's not what our focus should be when we consider these signs in, in John 2 or onward, but the spiritual reality in which they point to. Not focusing on the deed itself, but bringing our attention to the doer. And so the three things I want us to think about as we consider this sign today is uh, we're, we're going to consider Jesus' identity. We're going to consider Jesus' hour. We're going to consider Jesus' glory. 
But I want us to think first about these signs and how they're used not only in the Gospel of John, but throughout the Bible, because this isn't a new theme or a new strategy of talking that John is doing here. We actually see it in the Old Testament as well. And we're going to be jumping back to the Old Testament quite a few times during the course of this sermon. But consider the Passover. Right, The people of, of Israel are captive in Egypt for hundreds of years. God has raised up this leader, Moses, to lead the people out of Egypt. And there's these plagues that have occurred. And this tenth, tenth plague, you may know, is this plague of death. And so the people of Israel are instructed to put this lamb's blood on the doorpost. It says, as a sign that will protect them from God's judgment. So the firstborn in that household will not be killed. If you think, if you move forward to the prophets, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, speaking of this coming Messiah, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. And so just like these Old Testament signs point Israel forward to the coming of this Messiah, John is using this sign not to point anyone forward, to point to a man In the present, Jesus, this promised Messiah, this Christ has come. And so when he talks about this being the first of the signs in in, uh, verse 11, he doesn't mean like he's, he's about to start this just a sequential list of these miracles as he progresses in his book. This first sign is actually maybe better translated as an inaugural sign. He's referring to the fundamental nature of this miracle and how it creates this pattern for everything else that follows. So it's really essential for us to understand this sign so that we can better understand the rest of Jesus' ministry. And so as I mentioned, the three things that we're going to be looking at today is Jesus' identity, Jesus' hour, and Jesus' glory. So let's look first at Jesus' identity. What does this sign reveal to us about who Jesus is? Well, the passage opens with Jesus having just called his first disciples. If you were to go back to, to John 1, this is the very beginning of his ministry where he's baptized by John the Baptist, and he begins calling these disciples to himself. And we see, as we, we transition quickly to the fact that he's got this invitation to a wedding, we don't know whose wedding it is, but it's important to consider how these weddings would have operated in New Testament times. Unlike a wedding that we may experience today, which maybe takes place on a weekend, a ceremony that may last an hour, and then a party to follow for a few hours. New Testament times, this would have been a week-long affair. Something that would have involved family and friends. Hospitality would have been a must. Food and wine would have been in no short supply. And so we may think this this may seem like a, a weird setting for Jesus to begin his earthly ministry. I mean, if you're familiar with the Gospels, we know that Jesus healed the sick... He cast out demons, he preached the good news, but yet here he's just changing water into wine. That may seem rather trivial to us, as if it's if it's some party trick rather than a true act of ministry. But as we're going to see, this isn't any coincidence here that John includes this story at the beginning of this gospel. There's no coincidence here that this sign is performed at this wedding. And so if we go back to the Old Testament again, we see this language and this theme, these themes of weddings and marriage throughout the Old Testament. You know that God came to a man named Abram, and he made a covenant with Abraham to be his God, and that Abraham's people would be his people, 
And we know that that covenant was reiterated with Moses and with David. And this relationship, this covenant relationship, it's likened repeatedly to a marriage where God would be this groom, he would be the husband, and his people Israel would be the bride. And so if we, if we fast forward then to the prophet Hosea, near the end of the Old Testament, he gives this a similar prophetic symbolism here that tells of God's relationship with Israel. But it's quite a biting illustration because of how he characterizes the people of Israel. He characterized the people of Israel as a prostitute, as an unfaithful spouse. And yet we see God's love remain for his people. He promises to lavish them with love and compassion. This is what he says in Hosea 1, chapter 1, verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. And so the fact then that Jesus' earthly ministry begins at this wedding, it reveals to us who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom. Obviously, he isn't the bridegroom in this specific wedding. We're not told who the bride or groom is, whether they're well-known, whether they're wealthy, whether their family was Jesus related to them. Fact is, it doesn't matter because the focus of this passage is on Jesus, the true bridegroom. And so this is what has been prophesied. This is we are reaching the climax here of God's faithfulness revealed through his love by sending his son to his people to rescue them. And so while it doesn't actually say that Jesus is the bridegroom in this passage, we only have to go to the very next chapter in John 3 where we see this language actually being used. At the end of John 3, it records some of John the Baptist's disciples starting to quarrel a bit. You see, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. He had been baptizing people. He's the one who baptized Jesus himself. And now Jesus, in beginning his ministry, was attracting crowds. He was baptizing. He was preaching. And so now John the Baptist's disciples are getting maybe a little jealous, a little bent out of shape. And they go to John the Baptist and say, what, what's, what's happening? Don't you care that Jesus is detracting from your own ministry? And notice how John responds. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is in full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And so John explicitly we see in chapter 3, Jesus referred to as the bridegroom. John the Baptist saying, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the one to be worshipped and followed. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come for his bride. And so this imagery that we see then in chapter 2, it's not limited simply to Jesus' attendance at this wedding, but what he actually does at the wedding. Chapter 3, it says Jesus' mother approaches him, lets him know that there's no more wine. Obviously, a huge issue. If you're going to have a week-long party to run out of wine, a huge, unbearable embarrassment and shame would fall on the groom's family. But the thing is, this isn't just recorded simply to, to for us to understand there's, there's some serious catering issue here. Because again, as we think of wine, we also see great symbolism as well. Going back to the Old Testament again, wine is often seen as a representation of joy. 
We just read about this. Uh, we sang about it in Psalm 104. God's blessing to his people. We see it symbolically represented in wine. In the book of Amos, chapter 9, there's this prophecy of the return of Christ and this great wedding feast for his people. And it says the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And so if Jesus is the bridegroom, it should be no surprise that this is what he does at this wedding, providing this wine. Look at verse 6 again. Now there are six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from. Now these large jugs, it it mentioned they were for ceremonial washing. You wouldn't have drunk from these drugs. They were not for drinking. They were not for holding anything but water. And yet we see that in, in performing this sign from changing this water into wine, Jesus, he's not disregarding the need for cleansing. This was something that would have been required by Jewish ritual, that would have been done repeatedly by the people of Israel. So rather than disregarding this cleansing, Jesus comes in and he's providing a more effective means of cleansing. Because by providing this wine, he's saving this groom's family from this ultimate shame of this social faux pas. And not only that, but he's foreshadowing his own sacrifice that he will make on the cross when he removes our guilt and our shame from our sins. And so it really points forward to Jesus' own words with his disciples at that last supper before he's arrested and crucified those words of the Last Supper where he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so this is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together. We drink that we may remember the shed blood of Jesus. We, we celebrate the removal of our shame and our sin that we can participate in the new blessing of this new covenant. And so what's important to notice with this wine then, as described in this gospel, is both the quality of the wine and the quantity of the wine. When this wine is brought to the master of the banquet, he he goes immediately to the bridegroom. He tells him, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine later after the guests have had their fill. You bring out the best wine now. And so we see that this new wine offered by Jesus is, is a superior substitute than what could be offered by old Jewish ritual. Because if you, if you know anything about this Jewish ritual, we look at the Old Testament, how was the, did the people of Israel experience the forgiveness of sins? By blood sacrifice of an animal. That had to be done over and over and over again. By one priest and then another priest and then another priest throughout Jewish history. But now we see this replacement of this new, better covenant paid for by the blood of Jesus. No need for repeated sacrifice after sacrifice. It has now been replaced by one-time, all-sufficient spiritual cleansing by the blood of Jesus. And so not only is it better in quality then, but think about this quantity. Six jars, each holding 30 gallons, 180 gallons of wine. That, That sounds like a party to me. Uh, even for a week-long celebration, that's, that is a good bit of wine. And so it, 
Next chapter, again, it talks about, it, it illuminates this same point. When John talks about this, this bridegroom, he says he's coming to bring the fullness of joy. He provides the spirit without measure. And so this is the endless blessing that we experience when we recognize the identity of Jesus. But not only is it recognizing his identity, it's also then recognizing our identity because there's no sense for a bridegroom if there is not a bride. We are the bride of Christ. We see this repeatedly throughout the New Testament. We, the people of God, his church collectively stand as his bride. And so this is what Paul talks about. In his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, he's talking about this relationship between a husband and wife, and he likens it to this relationship of Christ in the church. So listen to these words from Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now think about, maybe if you are a a married woman, your own wedding, or maybe you want to be married or are planning to be married, all the preparation that goes into your wedding day. You have to go... Dress searching, you find the dress, you buy the dress, you have to get dress fitted, you have to plan out your hair and makeup and the flowers and all the details that have to go with the ceremony. Me as a male, probably most of us can attest that my preparation for my own wedding was showering the morning of. But we recognize the effort that a bride goes through to prepare for her wedding, right? And we may think, well, if I'm to be the bride of Christ and I need to prepare myself to rid myself of this shame, to prove myself worthy so that Christ will accept me. But Nick, recognize the action that's done in this passage that we just read in Ephesians. It's not the bride that does the action. It's the bride that is acted upon. Look at this text again. That he might sanctify her. That he might cleanse her. That he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor without spot and wrinkle. It is Christ who sanctifies and cleanses us and makes us holy. And so lest any of us think that we earn our salvation. Recognize, as Hosea says, we are the unfaithful spouse. There is nothing that we bring to the table to earn God's favor. And yet, even in spite of our unfaithfulness, we have a faithful God who comes to us and lavishes us with his love. Do you recognize that? That God loves you. It's a simple truth that those in the church, we recognize, but we don't often say enough because we just take it for granted. God loves you. And he lavishes his love upon you. As a bridegroom does for his bride. And so that is the sign revealing the identity of Christ, revealing our identity hidden in him. Consider now how it reveals Christ's hour. Now, although we looked at the sign already and how it was performed, we want to take a step back to consider Jesus' interaction with his mother first. In verse 4, after his mother comes to him and says there's no more wine, his response is, Mother, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
And there's been plenty of ink that's been spilled about this interaction. Some uh, kind of are a little uncomfortable with maybe how Jesus talks about his mother, said calling her woman. Maybe he seems to be brushing aside her concerns or being a little bit too dismissive. But if we look at this phrase, this, this question that he asked literally could be translated, what have I in common with you? It's the same question that in Mark 1, a demon-possessed man asks of Jesus. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And so the phrase here, it's not, we shouldn't consider it Jesus being rude to his mother, but he seems to be emphasizing his own autonomy from any sort of human agenda. And so rather than just rejecting his mother's request, it seems as though he's likely trying to challenge her to re-examine her motives for why she came to him and what she is most concerned about. So my background in the States was was actually law. Um, I attended law school and practiced law for a number of years before coming over to the UK. And, and one of the methods for learning, the primary method for learning in law school is something called the Socratic method. And so if you know the Greek philosopher Socrates, this is how he taught his students. This is replicated in any American law school that you'll go to. And so rather than a professor standing in front of his students and just giving a lecture, teaching is done through dialogue. And so a professor comes to class, he will call on a student, that student has to expect to stand up and answer all the professor's questions. So the professor is not just simply giving information to the students, he wants to draw that information out of the student. And so he asks a question, so follow-up question, and a follow-up question. The student may be standing all class time. We may call in a couple of students during the course of class. It can be terrifying if you're not prepared for class that day. But the objective is to get the students the ones thinking in order that information can be drawn out. And so it almost seems as that what Jesus is doing, something very similar here in this passage. So instead of allowing Mary to just have this superficial perspective about how he may be able to help solve her immediate catering need, he seems as to be welcoming her into a greater understanding of his identity and his responsibility by asking this question. And so we may think, well, it seems as though Jesus changed his mind this passage, as if he said, no, I'm not going to help you, and then he said, well, he eventually does the miracle. But in fact, I think we see something different. He's not the one who's changing his mind, but he may be the one who's challenging her mother, his mother to change her mind, to help her understand that he, as the bridegroom, as the Messiah, acts on his own terms and will work according to his eternal plan and will not be dictated by the concerns of man. And so he shows us, he tells his mother, what is his priority? My hour has not yet come. And so what does it mean when he talks about his hour? He's not simply talking about performing this miracle as if he just arrived to say, hold on, mom, let me like shake some hands or get some food and then I'll help you with this miracle. No, that's not what he's talking about. This hour, again, we can go back to the Old Testament to see how this word is used there as well. When we see hour used in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's linked to this understanding of the day of the Lord where God will bring judgment on his enemies and rescue his people. And so if we think of the prophet Daniel specifically, he refers to this hour as a time when the evil one will be overthrown, when God's people will be delivered from all their enemies. And so Daniel, this, this prophecy would have meaning in the immediate sense because they were held captive by Babylonians. 
And so he's referring to their deliverance from the Babylonians, but he's also pointing forward not only to this hour in the present, but an hour in the future, an end of times hour, this eschatological hour, when Christ will come again to fully and finally destroy evil and establish his eternal kingdom. And so with that understanding of that hour, how it's used elsewhere in the Bible, we can turn back to our passage to consider what does Jesus mean by this hour? Because it's a word that's repeated throughout the gospel. Sixteen times this hour of Jesus is mentioned in John. But when speaking of this hour, he's not talking about this, the nations and how they will be judged for their sins. Instead, he's referring to when he will be judged for the sins of the nations. Talking about his hour, he's talking about his own death and resurrection. That he will suffer the punishment for our sins in order to provide a means of salvation. And so when we think about this eschatological hour, it's totally dependent on Jesus' hour here. Because it is only through the blood of Jesus that we will be rescued, that his eternal kingdom will be ushered in and established. And judgment, it says, will come to those who reject this blood sacrifice. And so as we move through John and we consider the use of hour, we see this progression that occurs. Chapter 2, it says his hour has not yet come. Chapter 5, his hour has not yet come, but is coming. Chapter 12, his hour has now come. And so we see this changing language as we come closer and closer to the cross. And so we see this, this tension in how this hour is discussed. Something has already happened. The Savior has arrived, but there is still more to come. And so if you think about you or your family, uh, this happens often with us when we go on holiday. We have to pack up the car and all the things and squeeze the four kids in there. And for me, that holiday begins the second we leave our home, right? Because I'm not answering emails anymore. I don't have anything on my diary. I don't have any meetings planned. But it doesn't prevent my children from asking over and over again on our long commutes, are we there yet? When are we going to arrive? How much longer? Because they recognize that the full enjoyment of our holiday is not going to begin until we actually arrive at our destination. And so that's what we see when we consider this hour. Has the hour arrived? Well, prophecy has been fulfilled. Christ has come. The Messiah is, is here. This ministry of redemption has begun. But yet we see this revelation unfolding through the Gospel of John. And so that's why this sign is called an inaugural sign, because there is more to be revealed. Jesus' miracle here, it, it serves as a prelude for that hour of death and resurrection where he will prove himself eternally to be the one true God. And so we as believers have the benefit of this hindsight, right? We're not waiting for Jesus' beginning of ministry till his crucifixion resurrection. We now stand at the point of his resurrection and ascension and waiting for his return. And so you may have heard about this, this, this time period of referred to as the already and the not yet. Christ has conquered death, but he promises to come again. He promises to overthrow the evil one forever, to set up an eternal kingdom where we will live in perfect harmony with him. And so the question is, how do we live in this age? How do we live with eager anticipation of Christ's return when we will be his perfect bride forever? Thinking back on my own wedding again, I proposed to my wife when we were still in university our last year, and she will tell you that after I proposed, 
the assignment that she had due the next week, this paper she had to write, was the worst grade she ever got on assignment at university because of how distracted she was by being able to look at this ring on her finger, being able to call her friends and tell what happened, being able to start looking at wedding venues and thinking about wedding dresses and all this. And so is that not the same for us when we consider the return of Christ? Where should our mind be focused? What should be our priorities in this world? Is it the trying to climb the corporate ladder? Is it trying to make more money? Is it trying to be approved by our friends? Or is our focus directed somewhere else? Do we live with the anticipation of living in perfect communion with our Savior forever? And that ultimately brings us to our third point as we consider Jesus' glory. Look again at how this passage concludes. It says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, at first glance, this may seem like it's a, it's a strange conclusion or maybe a, an incorrect conclusion because there's nothing from these other characters in this narrative that would make you think that Jesus received any glory. In verse 10, it talks about the master of the banquet going to the wrong person. He goes to the bridegroom and says, hey, thanks for the good wine, essentially. He doesn't praise Jesus. He praises the groom. There's no mention of any wedding guests knowing that Jesus actually did this. No one made an announcement. Hey, if you like the wine, you know, thank Jesus on your way out. Even the servants, it says, who knew Jesus did this. It doesn't say that they worshipped him. It doesn't say anything about them. And so this glory that John is talking about here is not glory that's simply received from man's praise at the result of his miraculous work. It's glory that is innate glory in Christ, a glory that he has from the Father for his identity, his divine identity that he has. If we were to go back to John 1, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say we gave him glory. It is his glory. His glory is not based on our acknowledgement or response to him. He is glorious in his very being. And now that is starting to be revealed to his people. And so we see this this colliding of his glory and his hour coming together as we go forward in the God of John. In John 17, John, Jesus is praying this, what's called the high priestly prayer, right before he's arrested. And he begins his prayer by praying this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. See, Jesus understands that his death is imminent. And it's at this moment of death and resurrection where he will experience his glorification. Where these covenant promises will be fulfilled. Where Jesus' people will be saved. Where this eternal kingdom will be inaugurated. Not only does he receive the glory, it says he's reflecting that glory to the Father. And so we see what happens as a result of this glory. When the disciples get this first glimpse of glory here at this first sign, it says how they respond. The very end of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. And so it's a very simple statement that illustrates how the revelation of Jesus' glory leads to the faith of his people. Notice that these disciples had only been with Jesus for a number of days. 
doesn't say that they had any history, that they knew each other before. These disciples don't exactly know who Jesus is, and yet they believe. Recognize that there are many at this wedding that benefited from Jesus' provision of wine, yet remain totally ignorant of his identity. And so what we should see, what we should pray for is spiritual understanding that we may know who this Jesus is and what he does for us. Because this is the whole point of the Gospel of John. The reason for this writing, these signs, it says in John chapter 20, verses 31, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs point to life that we experience in Christ. And so I don't want us to miss this sign, much like I missed that national speed limit sign and had to pay the price of taking the test again, in all honesty, taking it again after that. (laughs) I don't want us to miss the importance of this sign today because we recognize the penalty for inaction or ignorance is much, much worse than having to pay the 60 pounds for another exam. The penalty for our sin is death, total separation from God forever. But for those who believe, we are the bride of Christ. And so that may that be our focus. Rather than looking for acceptance in this world, may we long for what we read earlier from Revelation 19, that we may be clothed in these fine linens, bright and pure, the righteousness provided to us from Christ, that we may cry out with all God's people, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the hour that we long for. And so how is that going to affect us in the present? It should affect every aspect of how we live and where we spend our time and our money and our energy. Let us desire to be the bride of Christ and let that infuse every aspect of our lives. Because we recognize when the bridegroom receives his bride, not only do we receive that communion, but it is God who receives the glory. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be our perfect bridegroom. We thank you that you lavish your love. Though we are not faithful, though we are unfaithful spouses, we recognize that your love is enduring and that your grace abounds. And so, God, for those that don't know you here today, that may have heard this gospel message for the first time, we pray, Lord, that you will draw them in. May they experience your love and your tenderness for the very first time. We pray, Lord, for your people here, your church, your bride. We ask, Lord, that you refine us, that you make us holy, that we may resemble how your bride will look on your return. May that be our motivation and our desire to be in pure and holy relationship with you, to see you, God the Father, glorified forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.